Good morning. Our Bible reading this morning is from the King James Version, and I'll be reading from Psalm 116, verses 1 to 13. I love the Lord, because he hath heard my voice and my supplications. Because he hath inclined his ear unto me, therefore I will call upon him as long as I live. The sorrows of death compassed me, and the pains of hell get hold upon me. I found trouble and sorrow. Then I called upon the name of the Lord. O Lord, I beseech thee, deliver my soul. Gracious is the Lord, and righteous, yea, our God is merciful. The Lord preserveth the simple. I was brought low, and he helped me. Return unto thy rest, O my soul, for the Lord hath dealt bountifully with thee. For thou hast delivered my soul from death, mine eyes from tears, and my feet from falling. I will walk before the Lord in the land of the living. I believed, therefore I have spoken. I was greatly afflicted. I said in my haste, all men are liars. What shall I render unto the Lord for all his benefits toward me? I will take the cup of salvation and call upon the name of the Lord. Well, it's a privilege to be here. Uh, It's a privilege to be standing down the front and listening to Neville sing. We we should force him to have sung because he has a beautiful voice. The first European ceremony on our shores on the 26th of January, 1788, was a strangely, presciently Aussie affair. It was shambolic, laconic, and was loaded with beer. Uh, You may know that the first fleet landed at Botany Bay to begin, thinking that's where they would disembark. Uh, But when they arrived on the 20th of January, which might have been the first Australia Day, they couldn't find the supposedly lovely meadows surrounding a harbour that Captain Cook had mentioned in his official report from 18 years earlier. They looked at it and thought, this? I think we'll make this an airport or something like that, maybe they thought. (laughs) But uh, Governor Phillip decided that would not be where the colony would disembark, so they searched up and down the coast until they found a place a few miles north and decided that's where they would set up the new colony. Uh, They sailed into what was called Port Jackson, our Sydney harbour, and Arthur Phillip, in his official dispatch home, described it, quote, as the finest harbour in the world. I think we'd agree with that. As the 11 ships of the First Fleet sailed up the harbour on the 26th of January, 1788, apparently indigenous locals lined both sides of the harbour, shouting and waving their spears. They were perhaps the only ones who knew what a haunting day 
that was. Around uh, midday on the 26th, a small group of uh, officers and marines landed right near Circular Quay, raised the Union Jack, let off several rounds of gunfire, raised four rounds of beer, ostensibly in honour of different members of the royal family, and then shouted three cheers, which was returned uh, from those on board the ships. And just so, writes one officer, this new town was christened. Christened. Except that there was nothing religious about this christening. There was no prayer. There was no Bible, no hymn singing. Just lots of noise and beer. And we're not told what the, chaplains, uh, the chaplain to the colony, Richard Johnson, thought of this rollicking, irreligious ceremony to kick off this young convict nation. But whatever he thought of that first day, the worst was yet to come for poor old Richard Johnson. Johnson, many of you may know, uh, was actually an afterthought in the founding of the colony. Um, the Home Office really only sent him because of the petition of the famous ex-slave uh, trader and Christian convert, uh, John Newton, who wrote Amazing Grace, actually, that we sung a moment ago, and the petition of William Wilberforce, the famous anti-slavery parliamentarian. They got together, they knew Johnson, they recommended him for the gig, and the government accepted. Johnson probably doesn't rank among those giants of the 18th century Christianity. But just like Newton and Wilberforce, Richard Johnson was an evangelical Anglican who saw his ministry in holistic terms rather than just spiritual terms. Uh, now, he was a red-hot preacher, for sure, but he actually saw his role in the colony as far more than you know, the so-called spiritual dimensions. He was the colony's best farmer, by all reports, and taught farming to anyone who wanted to learn and had a massive impact on the early economy. He and his wife, Mary, were in charge of all schooling and taught uh, over 150 children in those first few years. Johnson famously engaged with convicts and officers alike. And the interesting thing is he refused to play the role of moral policeman, which is what successive governors wanted from the chaplain. He wouldn't do it. Uh, Richard Johnson was also uh, an early model of peace and friendship with indigenous people of the land. Uh, we know how quickly it went wrong. We know the mistakes the church has made, but Johnson himself was a beautiful advocate for building mutual trust. Uh, he and Mary adopted an orphaned indigenous child uh, with permission. They named their own daughter by an Aboriginal name, uh, Milba. And on one occasion, Johnson even acted as a um, human collateral. When Benelong, the leader of the local community, met with uh, Governor Arthur Phillip, Johnson was chosen to be the hostage out in bush with the local tribe, which he apparently enjoyed. <laughs> Perhaps most striking is Richard Johnson's tireless efforts amongst the sick and dying. Against all advice, Johnson regularly 
visited the diseased and putrid holds underneath the ships where convicts were usually left to die. If you came in on one of those many ships in the first four to five years and you were sick, you were left there until you were died and, and, and then you were buried. And Johnson visited them. He saw it as his daily duty. In fact, we have a beautiful convict letter back home, a convict back to his family members saying this, few of the sick would recover if it were not for the kindness of the Reverend Mr. Johnson, whose assistance out of his own stores makes him the physician both of soul and body. I've often thought that's a perfect description of what the church is meant to be in society, don't you think? The physician of soul and body. But on spiritual matters, uh, sadly, Johnson fought an uphill battle. His relationship with the first governor, Arthur Philip, uh, was polite, we're told, but not at all friendly. And the reason for this is that Arthur Philip wanted Johnson to preach on moral subjects in his sermon, not on spiritual themes. And, you know, I look back on that and I think, how ironic that at our founding, it was the secular government that criticized the church for not moralizing enough. Just let that sink in. Johnson was an extraordinary man. When Arthur Philip left, uh, he was replaced in 1792 by a temporary governor, Major Gross, and that's where Johnson's troubles really began. Uh, Gross displayed open contempt for Johnson and his religion. Uh, Gross decided to get church out of the way on a Sunday morning. Compulsory church should be 6 a.m. and last no longer than 45 minutes. Now, I think we can all agree that the second idea was a pretty good one, uh, but 6 a.m. And more than once we have recorded that Gross, in the middle of one of Richard Johnson's sermons, ordered all the troops in attendance to stand to attention and march out. I've had some weird things happen during my sermons, but never that. Uh, Johnson petitioned the government for five years to get a church built for the colony, and they just wouldn't do it. They had built countless houses, the governor's residence, obviously, uh, hospital, uh, pubs, um, uh, shops, uh, did I mention pubs, uh, but not a church until eventually Johnson decided to build it out of his, at his own cost, recorded as 67 pounds, 12 shillings. It sat 500 people. It lasted five years before being burnt down under very suspicious circumstances. It would be another 10 years before a replacement was built. With all of this as background, I want to take us to Johnson's first church service on these shores. Not the first ceremony, not the first important spiritual ceremony, those honors belong to the original peoples of this land. I want to take us to the first Christian service, the first Christian proclamation on these shores, on the first Sunday following disembarkation in 1788. It was a solemn affair, certainly compared to the beer drinking one a few days earlier. Johnson, set up a table with these very books. 
his Bible, his Book of Common Prayer, under a great tree, we're told, and conducted the service for the entire colony. That's almost 800 uh, convicts and a couple of hundred uh, uh, soldiers, officers, uh, and their family members. What Contench, who was there, recorded that the behavior of both the officers and the convicts was equally regular and attentive. Everyone listened intently as Johnson announced the reading. The 116th Psalm, 12th verse. And you think, what idea would he try and convey to kick off this implausible convict colony? We know what ideas the government wanted him to use, the Ten Commandments, something really nice and moral. Johnson chose these few words. What shall I render unto the Lord for all his benefits toward me? Or in modern translations, what can I return to the Lord for all his goodness toward me? By the way, those funny letters that look like Fs, that's just the way they printed what's called the first S or the long S until the year 1800. That's just for free this morning. At one level, what a bizarre text. And you can go into Hunter and Bly Street, by the way, uh, and go to the obelisk marking the spot where this first church service was held, and those words are actually printed there. It's lovely. What shall I render unto the Lord for all his benefits toward me? You think, how bizarre. The 800 convicts in Johnson's audience had just spent eight long months chained in the dark and rancid hulls of their mobile prisons. The benefits of the Lord were probably not high on the mind. At another level, it was a great text to begin with. For starters, I'm sure the convicts were really relieved that it wasn't one of the many thou shalt nots that Johnson could have chosen, that the government wanted him to. And we also do know that there was a sense of amazement in the air, even amongst the convicts, that they had survived, that actually so little loss hit the first fleet. But there's a more important reason this was a great verse to choose, because the question at the heart of this text takes us to the heart of what is unique about the Christian faith. We don't have a, a script of Johnson's sermon, but we do know he chose this text deliberately because it actually wasn't one of the set texts that a good Anglican was meant to read on that date. He chose this deliberately. And also, we have a pamphlet he wrote just a few years later to the colony outlining what he thought was his central message to the colony. So we don't have to speculate what Johnson was getting at when he said this. Psalm 116 verse 12 expresses a truth that is the Bible's essential contribution to the history of ideas. It's this thought. Christianity is about gratitude in response to God's gifts, not morality in pursuit of reward. I'll say that again because it's so contrary 
to how our world operates. Christianity is about gratitude in response to God's gifts, not morality in pursuit of reward. So many areas of life back then and today operate on reward for performance. That's the principle, right? Starts young. Kids say to each other in the playground, if you do this, I'll be your best friend. The school system operates on this. If you do well, get good marks, you know, you'll get the awards. When we get out to the business world, it's even worse. Perform well and you're promoted. Don't perform, watch out. And some people do take that into their religion and think that if I perform certain rituals, I do certain moral deeds, then I will win the benefits of the Lord, right? That is how our mind works. But here's the thing. It's not what Johnson preached. Even though it's exactly the form of religion Major Gross and Arthur Philip wanted him to preach because, of course, uh, performance for reward is a great way of controlling people. If you hold out the punishment of hell for people's behavior or the promise of reward of heaven, it's a good way to control people. That's what the colony officials wanted and Johnson wouldn't have a bar of it. He preached what theologians call grace. What his friend John Newton called amazing grace in the song he wrote 15 years earlier. It is moralizing religion, not Christianity, that says, what shall I perform for the Lord to win his benefits? Christianity says, what shall I render or return to the Lord for all his benefits toward me. I don't know how to say this clearer. The Christian life is not motivated by reward or punishment, but by gratitude for the grace, the gifts already received. And you know, there's an excellent reason this is such a big deal for Christianity. The whole purpose of Christ's death. And so pretty much the central claim of Christianity is that he died for our wrongdoing so we could be forgiven. I know many of you know that. But think of this. Imagine Christians saying, "Uh, no, 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 no. It's my performance that wins forgiveness, not Christ's sacrifice. It isn't just that Christianity doesn't teach performance for God's reward. It teaches, it's a blasphemy to think that. Because you are stamping on Christ's own death for us. He paid the penalty. That's the heartbeat of the Christian faith. And we know this is what Richard Johnson preached. It's what he's thinking when he made these 13 words the foundation of the colony. What shall I render unto the Lord? for all his benefits toward me. Indeed, the very next verse, which Johnson, being a good expositor, would have pointed out, give the answer to the question, what shall I render? What do I do? Well, here it is. I will take the cup of salvation and call upon the name of the Lord. We respond to God's gift by just taking hold of that salvation and calling on his name. Um, If I had more time, and I realize I don't, Bruce is there with the stopwatch. 
I would read to you from a lovely pamphlet Johnson preached four years into his service in the colony. Um, It is entirely about taking hold of the salvation the Lord offers and calling upon the name of the Lord. I, I won't read it. I will read you the first and last lines. It opens with, your souls are precious. You are precious to the Lord Jesus Christ. You are precious in my esteem. And then it goes on for a whole length of a sermon all about Jesus' death and so on. And it ends just like this. This will be my daily prayer to God for you. Your eternal salvation. But let me leave Richard Johnson for a moment. And look at things from the perspective of one of the convicts sitting there under that great tree at that first Christian service in 1788, about whom we have some very striking remaining evidence. Samuel Payton, at 19 years of age, was caught in London in possession of a stolen watch, which he said he won at a card game, which didn't wash, And as you can see up there in 1785, he was given seven years transportation. And in May 1787, he found himself locked in the hull of the Alexander on his way to who knows where. Eight months later, he arrives at Sydney Cove and is set to work as a stonemason. Uh, supporting the flurry of early colonial building activity, the hospital, the prison, the governor's house, the pubs, and so on. And sadly, within just five months of being here, Samuel Payton was caught again, red-handed, in an officer's quarters, trying to steal, and I quote the report, a shirt, stockings, and a comb. I kind of get the impression he was more foolhardy than pure evil. But he was promptly tried and sentenced on the Monday. And on the Wednesday, 25th June, 1788, was led out to the gallows where the Four Seasons Hotel now stands at the rocks. And he was hanged. He was 21. And Samuel Payton would just be another name in a convict log, actually, if it were not for an extraordinary letter he wrote to his mother the night before his execution. And we have it. The only reason we have it is because one of the officers saw it and was so amazed at the learning and spirit of the letter, it's preserved for us. In it, Payton mentions the assistance of a commiserating friend the night before. Now, here's the thing. We know that it was Richard Johnson's duty to visit prisoners like this and to stay with them, if they wished, right to the last breath. And I mention that because Peyton's letter sounds like he has fully absorbed the message we know Richard Johnson was preaching. The message of salvation. Let me read just a portion of the letter. And then I'll close. My dear mother, 
with what agony of soul do I dedicate the last few moments of my life to bid you an eternal farewell? My doom being irrevocably fixed and ere this hour tomorrow I shall have entered into an endless eternity. I will not distress your tender maternal feelings by any long comment on the cause of my present misfortune. Let it therefore suffice to say that I have at length fallen an unhappy though just victim to my own follies. Too late I regret my inattention to all your admonitions. And I feel myself sensibly affected by the remembrance of the many anxious moments you have passed on my account. For these and all my other transgressions, however great, I supplicate the divine forgiveness. And encouraged by the promises of that Savior who died for us all, I trust to receive that mercy in the world to come, which my offenses have deprived me of in this. Banish from your memory all my former indiscretions and let the cheering hope of a happy meeting hereafter console you for my loss. He ends, sincerely penitent for my sins, sensible of the justice of my conviction and sentence and firmly relying on the merits of a blessed saviour, redeemer. I trust I shall yet experience that peace which this world cannot give. Your unhappy dying son, Samuel Payton, Port Jackson, New South Wales, 24th June, 1788. Payton's letter captures perfectly the heart of the Christian faith. Not performance, but grace. Payton was not thinking of the good he might have done to earn the benefits of the Lord. He is, in his own words, trusting in the promises of the Savior who died for us all, firmly relying on the merits of a blessed Redeemer. His death is actually mentioned in several different journals from the time. We know it was a cold, wet, squally June day. And at 11.30 a.m., he mounted the gallows, And he was allowed to give what one witness described as an eloquent, well-directed speech, admitting guilt and asking for forgiveness. He died penitent, wrote another witness. He died in the embrace of the Savior, is how I'd put it. Friends, uh, from the first days of modern Australia, Christianity emphasized not performance, but grace. The news that Christ died for petty thieves like Peyton, earnest priests like Richard Johnson, and even moralizing thugs like Major Gross. He died for colonizers, for indigenous peoples, for peoples of all nations. Thankfully, he died for neglectful materialists, thankless atheists, 
and even for the smugly religious. This was the first doctrine preached on our shores because it is the most important message. What shall I render unto the Lord for all his benefits toward me? I will take the cup of salvation and call upon the name of the Lord. May we all receive Christ's grace. Well, what a treat this morning. We're going to pray, and then I'm going to get Bruce up to close with some announcements.